I want to begin today by showing you uh, a short two-minute video. Perhaps one of the most inspiring speeches that's ever been made in the history of films is the speech made by Samwise Gamgee to Frodo in the Lord of the Rings film, The Two Towers. And as you watch this little clip, bear in mind that just before this scene, Frodo has just tried to kill Sam. These two vulnerable little hobbits, as they're on this amazing quest to destroy the ring, they almost end up destroying each other. And then Sam responds with this speech. Let's watch. I can't do this, Sam. I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end... It's only a passing thing. This shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. What are we holding on to, Sam? There's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo. And it's worth fighting for. I think even poor Gollum's heart got touched in that scene, didn't it? What good thing would you say is worth fighting for? In the remarkable section that Rich just read to us in Matthew chapter 18, I think Jesus would say, life in the family is worth fighting for. Life in his family is worth fighting for. This little passage from verse 15 to verse 20 that we read is actually quite famous because on one level, Jesus is laying here a very early, almost embryonic foundation for what we might call church discipline. 
and I'm sure you'll agree that there are not many better ways to spend a Sunday afternoon than thinking through disciplinary processes. Um, but this passage seems to me to be way bigger than, than process. Um, I've said before that I often wonder what expression would have been on Jesus' face as he taught his friends. During the recent Euro football championships, there's been a couple of times at least where maybe after a game, the coach or sometimes the captain or one of the players has gathered the team into a little huddle on the pitch. And the, the battle has been fought, the game's been played, and, and, and an individual gathers the team around him and gives a little pep talk, maybe to fire them up for the next game after what they've just done. I think in this chapter, Jesus is drawing his friends in, in a similar kind of way. And somehow to me, this seems breathless and passionate. As Jesus draws his friends in, he looks them in the eye and he says, you will let one another down. You will at times get on each other's nerves. You will sometimes deliberately and sometimes accidentally hurt and offend one another. But listen, listen, this family, this thing that we have together is worth fighting for. Jesus is clearly under no illusion here that problems will arise between his followers, his friends, his disciples. But Jesus is not suggesting for a moment that they should ever resort to simply papering over the cracks and pretending that things are okay if they're not. Jesus here is clearly, I, I think this is beautiful, Jesus is clearly here both passionate and practical in his concern for reconciliation and I don't think we can overestimate the importance of that can we reconciliation is crucial even this week I, I've heard of family breakdowns I'm sure you have parents and their adult children not talking to each other couples who've been married for decades drifting apart and calling it a day. Close friends who have badly let one another down with neither one of them being willing to make the first move. Relationships have such power for good, don't they? But such incredible potential for heartbreak. Reconciliation it's very important. Life in this family is worth fighting for. So let's dig in to these six verses. I want to do so under two broad headings. Go and know. In the first three verses here, verse 15, 16 and 17, Jesus lays down a simple and clear three-step process, if you like, for dealing with conflict in the church, amongst his friends, in his family. 
And then in the last three verses, 18, 19 and 20, they, these are not random additions. They, these are all connected. In the last three verses, Jesus goes on to give his friends three, and I can't overemphasize this, three huge, larger-than-life encouragements that he wants his followers to know as they fight this fight. So go and know. First of all, then, go and fight for each other. I think that one little simple word in verse 15 is so crucial. Go. That, that, that's the word that's grabbed me during this past week in this section. It's such an active word, isn't it? It means to get up and do something. Parents know something of this perhaps on the first day of school as they try to gently but firmly push their hesitant child through the school gate. Go, 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 go. It's, there's an imperative, it's go. This is Jesus here urging his friends to do something. I want to try and flesh this out for us with a, I suppose, a kind of recipe that has five ingredients. The whole approach of Jesus here, it's hard to quantify in a sentence, but I, I think here there's a rich blend of, of five different important flavours. Maybe you can tell me afterwards what the main flavour is or, or what the total overall flavour will be, but five things here. And, um, and here they are. First of all, responsibility not avoidance. Um, the first thing that will strike us and should strike us here in verse 15 is that Jesus is not speaking to the wrongdoer. If he was speaking to the offender, he, he might still say go, but he would say something like, go and apologize. Go and apologize to the person that you've just hurt and seek their forgiveness. But he's not doing that in this instance. Here he's speaking to those who have been wronged and urging them to go and do something. Now, there, there's some debate here in verse 15. It was interesting that Rich read to us, if your brother sins, go. Um, in my version here in the NIV, it says, if your brother sins against you, go. And you might have a little footnote in your Bible because there, there are manuscripts in existence, whole manuscripts that have both. Um, I, I think in this church family, I, I, I'm not sure it, it, it matters fully which one of these it is. If someone in this family sins, the, the point is that we all have a responsibility. But I think, I think when we're hurt particularly, uh, one, one response can be that we suck in silence and stew we, we climb into the slow cooker of bitterness and we set it to a slow simmer setting and we just kind of slowly stew uh, with, with kind of anger and bitterness because we're hurting but Jesus says here don't wait for the other person to come to you go Go and fight for your brother or sister. 
It's very, very, very poignant that, isn't it? Don't wait for the other person to apologize or to come and own it with you. You go to them. And as, as I've said there, I think, I think what Jesus is introducing here is the responsibility that all of us in his family have for each other. God once asked Cain where his brother Abel was. And Cain had the brass neck to reply sarcastically to God, am I my brother's keeper? According to Jesus here, the answer to that question is a resounding yes, you are. In this family, you are not just responsible for you. Jesus here lays on all of you, on all of us, the responsibility for one another. Even if someone hates us in this family, Jesus calls us still to have the very best interests of the other person at heart and to go. Secondly, there's something here that I want to call humility, not harshness. And, and here's the thing, if just being a conflict avoider is, is, is one extreme, there is, of course, an opposite extreme. And Jesus doesn't envisage either here that we all go wrong with clipboards, finding fault with each other. In fact, Jesus said on one other occasion, don't be so concerned about the speck of dust in your neighbor's eye that you fail to see one of Moe's floor timbers coming out of your own eye. I remember an episode of Come Dine With Me, I don't know where this came from, where one of the guests brought a magnifying glass and got it out to check that there were no hairs or dust on the plate or on the table in front of them. Sometimes as Christians, that's how we can be. The gentleness, I think, of Jesus comes out in this chapter earlier when Jesus says, don't despise any of these little ones. And your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Jesus isn't then suddenly urging his followers to become harsh. Jesus always paints this wonderful balance, doesn't he? On the one hand, be kind. But don't be so kind and patient that you tolerate everything and turn a blind eye to things that need to be addressed. But on the other hand, don't be picky and critical. Jesus is not establishing a process here in these verses that gives the powerful permission to spy on or crush the weak. That isn't the point of what Jesus is saying here. This is about a family helping one another to be the best that they can be. Sometimes that will include helping one another to see our faults so that we can address them and grow. But none of that is ever to be done harshly. We can see this in a third ingredient. I've called this positivity, not punishment. We can see this clearly in the words of Jesus here in the rest of verse 15. If your brother sins or sins against you, 
Go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. Go here does not mean lock and load. We're not going there to tell the other person off or to give them a piece of our mind. The idea is not to make the other person suffer because they've somehow hurt us. The goal here is not to win an argument, but to win a person. And notice how Jesus here urges privacy and discretion just between the two of you. As an aside here, it should be obvious. I shouldn't have to say this, but I do have to say this. We're not talking here about abusive behaviours. You know that, don't you? Jesus is not encouraging victims of abuse to confront their abusers in private. The general point here being made is that keeping things as confidential as possible demonstrates respect for the other person. Jesus is saying, don't gossip about them. Go and talk to them. Don't make yourself feel bad, better by bad-mouthing them so that the whole world knows about this before the other person does. If you care about the other person, the idea is not to publicly shame them or deliberately humiliate them to get back at them somehow. I, sometimes I think we need to be careful in our hearts here, don't we? Sometimes I think we can tell ourselves that we're interested in justice when, when actually what we really want deep down is to get our own back. We're not wanting the other person to be restored. What we really want is for them to be punished. Jesus is saying here, we, we must lose all that kind of thinking. Living with such bitterness and, and a kind of malice towards others can so easily become like a prison that we find ourselves living in without even realizing. In this family, Jesus says, we are to go and love our brothers and sisters enough to seek their good, even when they've hurt us. Dare I say it, it's almost as if we have to understand and feel concerned for and maybe even to have forgiven the other person prior to even getting there if we're going to win them a fourth is it a fourth no idea what we're up to number four ingredient here is tenacity jesus very beautifully says basically if you win brilliant that's the tone of what jesus says go and if you win brilliant no one else needed to know but if you don't win don't give up 
I think that's the point. It underlines the idea again here, the big idea of fighting, doesn't it? If you don't win, it's entirely possible that the other person will react badly. But don't give up. Don't dismiss them as a lost case. Don't think, oh, what's the point? Jesus says, try again. What does he say? Verse 16, if he will not listen, take one or two others along. <laughs> try again. Don't give up. Maybe this is to add another level of weight to the pleading. Notice that it's still quite discreet. Don't take everyone. <laughs> take a couple of close friends. This is an escalation, but not everyone needs to know. But this has moved now beyond individual opinions, hate feelings. There's something helpful, I think, and wise in having other pairs of eyes. Things perhaps, think things perhaps become more objective and more careful. Maybe it even gives the person, the offender, more opportunity to explain things. Maybe this avoids potential misunderstandings. There's a sense here of not just leaving things unresolved, hanging, but striving to get to the bottom of what's gone on. But the intention here is still reconciliation, restoration. And the, the fifth uh, ingredient here, I think, is courage rather than complacency. Jesus is very clear that in some sad cases there is a last resort. What we see here is a kind of digging in of heels. It's interesting to me, in the first two stages here, uh, Matthew speaks about listening or not listening quite neutrally if he listens to you, but if he will not listen. He talks about listening or not listening quite neutrally. But when we get to verse 17, it's not neutral. If he refuses to listen, the offender is saying, I I'm not having this. I I'm not having this. And Jesus says the last resort here is to treat the person like you would a pagan or a tax collector. That that's a Jewish way of saying treat them as though they're not inside the family, but outside the family. That, that's a Jewish way of talking about outsiders, isn't it? We, we want them to be in the family. But this makes no sense if they're not acting like a member of the family. And what the whole community, in a sense, is doing here is saying to the person, you are claiming to follow Jesus, but you're not. And we cannot, in all honesty, affirm your following of Jesus any longer. I, one of the striking things about this, people debate the, this kind of exclusion. One of the striking things here is that the door is always open for outsiders to become insiders. And in actual fact, the Gospels make a big thing of Jesus loving pagans and tax collectors. In fact... Matthew, who writes this gospel, was a tax collector who Jesus called. So it's quite ironic that he's writing this as a former tax collector, an outsider 
who is now in the inner circle of Jesus' friends. It seems to me that in this family, any issue can be faced and forgiven and dealt with, except stubbornness. Sounds like the OK Corral, doesn't it, outside? Wow. The way into this family has always been to trust Jesus and to repent of sin. And it seems here that the only way out of this family is stubborn, unrepentant sin. This is truly a sad outcome. But Jesus does urge here his friends to have courage, not complacency, because in actual fact, the whole integrity and unity and preciousness of the family is threatened and compromised. In other words, there's something good here that is worth fighting for. If someone is hurting others or living in a way that is hurting themselves, or if that behaviour somehow brings dishonour on Jesus, the whole family is called by Jesus to lovingly plead with the offender, humbly, not to give up, and none of this is designed to be vindictive. All of it is designed to be affectionate. Jesus says, go, go. Take responsibility for one another. Now, if this seems like hard work, <laughs> I want us to see how Jesus goes cosmic here in giving the most ridiculously huge promises. <laughs> Jesus tells them to go, but he then tells them three things that they should know in this fact. And I, I, I wanna argue that all of this points to how utterly precious every single individual believer in Jesus is. So here's three things to know. First of all, know. He's talking to his friends here. Know, first of all, that when you engage in this process, this fight for reconciliation, know that heaven itself will back you. Isn't that a wonderful sentiment? Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's a lot of debate about what this means. First of all, let's be clear about what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the church is infallible. <laughs> and it doesn't mean that heaven is simply agreeing with whatever is decided on earth. These friends and we are not free to do whatever we want and expect heaven to put a big tick next to what we do. We're not free to follow our own opinions and whims. What it does seem to mean is that under the authority of God himself, 
This is a self-regulating community in which all the members of the family together are deciding who is inside and who is outside of the family. This is one of the reasons, actually, that we have a membership process here at REC. As this group of friends seek to follow Jesus together, as they base their lives on God's word and the teaching of Jesus, as they seek to preach the good news of the gospel and call each other to faith and repentance, all of that activity carries the authority of heaven behind it. They may be assured that he will own them and stand by them and will ratify what they say and do so that it shall be taken as said and done by himself. He will own them. Why? Because they're precious to him. As this little group then tries to live faithfully under God's rule, applying these principles, all of them are precious to God who promises to be with them. Heaven will back you. Secondly, in verse 19, Jesus says, my father will hear you. Not only will heaven back you, my father will hear you. Jesus then says, again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Now, again, this isn't a magic formula. Where two Christians agree on something and God just gives them whatever they want because they've both prayed the same thing. Neither is it a weapon to yield, uh, to wield, yield, wield. You, you can't have a situation in a church where two people over here, because they agree, feel like God is hearing their prayer, even if everyone else disagrees with them. This is not a weapon to wield in a dispute. What it does mean is that by, behind the heavenly approval and the binding and loosing of verse 18 is the prayer of verse 19. This is a family that is not only grounded in God's word and will, but together they are humbly seeking, praying for God's help. And isn't Jesus straining here? Isn't Jesus bending over backwards here to help us to see that it's not our massive numbers that make the difference? It's the, it, this is the lowest number that there could be if it's not just one person, isn't it? it if two of you agree. Jesus is saying, I, you, you don't need to be a church of 500 people for my Father in heaven to hear your prayers. This chapter has all been about the little ones. It's all been about the fragile ones, the insignificant ones. God sees the little ones where to pray. Jesus says, my father in heaven will hear you. God doesn't need to be impressed by our massive size. but he does respond to our heartfelt prayers. He loves his precious people wherever they are and however many 
or however few they may be. And Jesus says, my father in heaven hears you. He will respond in kindness to his precious people. What Jesus is conveying here surely is how precious they are. As you go and do the things that I'm urging you to do, heaven will back you and my Father will hear you. But if it were possible, he saves the best to last. Thirdly, Jesus says, I will be with you. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. The little word for means because, which means that the heavenly backing in verse 18 that is underpinned by the united praying in verse 19 are actually both inspired by the presence of the risen Jesus with his people. This is cosmic. And this is not a metaphor for something else. This is gloriously and literally true. The presence of the risen Christ is the centre of our church family and all of its gatherings, including this one. This is both terrifying and stunning and comforting and encouraging all at the same time. He himself is here and near, not just to some of you, but to each and every single one of you. And the way Jesus says this, it's as if he was there first and he's always there. And when we gather together as as his people, we find him there as we come. There's normally people here at like, I don't know, 2.15 if they're on set up. Jesus is here before that. (laughs) As we gather together, Jesus says, there am I with them. And he's present with his people when they are just two or three or two or three thousand. And what does it mean for us to gather together in his name? What does that mean? It means that we gather with his permission and at his kingly command. It means that we gather because we're related to him, believing in him, and because he commands us to love one another. Here we are. We gather to worship God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, depending upon Jesus, his Son, for help, and upon his worth and righteousness for our acceptance. We gather under his rule to honour him, to hear his word, to encourage each other to follow him. He is here because he loves us 
And because he's here, we're confident of his help. We're united in his love. We're striving to be like him. And are we not super keen not to give or take offense? Because if Christ is here, why would we break that peace by hurting one another? What Jesus says here is the most beautiful, compelling vision of church as family that has ever been spoken. And the notion of an isolated individual Christian doesn't make any sense in the light of this. If we belong to him, we belong to one another. Every follower of Jesus should be willingly and joyfully and gladly accountable to a local group of other believers like this one. It's not perfect, but it is amazing. And Jesus himself promises here that this will be graced with heaven's backing. This will have the ear of his Father in heaven. And we will experience the power and promise of the continuing presence of Jesus himself. Is reconciliation hard work? Yes, it is. But Jesus says, go. Do we have great promises to rely upon and that enable us to do this hard work? Yes, we do. Let me close with this. Right at the start, we heard Sam Gamji say it's like in the great stories Mr Frodo can't say Mr Frodo without doing that silly accent it's like in the great stories Mr Frodo the ones that really mattered the greatest of all stories and the one that really matters is the good news of the gospel of Jesus and here's the thing, Jesus never once asked his friends to do something that he's not done himself. Do we realize that Jesus is actually the one who was offended by us? And God the Father said to him, don't wait for them to make the first move, go. And so, he came. He did not sulk in silence or shame us by bad-mouthing us. He came looking for us rather than writing us off. He assumed our well-being onto his shoulders as if he was our closest relative. And he came humbly, positively, tenaciously, courageously, Jesus doesn't live in a prison of bitterness. He walks free in a kind of garden of generosity. And he laid down his life to save ours and to bring us into this family.
and he calls us to believe in him and to repent and then to invest our lives in fighting for what really matters fighting for life in his family amen let's pray shall we father your word is stunning we we we're, we're amazed at the balance of it the the challenge of it the encouragement of it we thank you for the vision that we see here and we pray that, that you would help us to go and that you would help us to know these things that you want your friends to know oh lord help us never to take church for granted help us lord to see it for the glorious thing that it is and we pray in the, in the powerful name of Jesus who is here. We pray in his name, amen. I found this talk hard to prepare because we, we could have preached like six sermons on this section. We've, we've, I don't know how long we've been, we've crammed it into a few minutes. Let me invite you, if you have any questions, <laughs> If, if you have um, any concerns or, or, or anything struck you or jarred with you, please don't hesitate to be in touch with Fenton. No, I mean, please don't. Please don't hesitate to be in touch with me. Um, we love you. And uh, we love our church. So please don't uh, yeah, suffer in silence. Um we're going to sing are we, are we going to go outside no we're not going outside so we're not going to sing we're going to listen um, to I Stand Amazed in the Presence